You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Uh, We are in a series uh, where we are looking at the life of David. And this morning... We are going to look at a story that probably, in some ways, if you've been around the church, uh, is a familiar story in the context of a long list of names. And so uh, that's partly why while we've had uh, Scripture readers uh, the last several weeks, I decided not to burden anyone with this passage uh, because the names are... Uh, well, it would be torture, actually, um, and I couldn't think of just the right person to torture this week. So, um, we'll, um, we'll look at it together. But in 2 Samuel 23, what you have is the, is the list of David's mighty men. And so, before we get too much further in David's story, we do want to stop and we want to consider these mighty men. I'll begin this way, um, and that is by what typically inspires us, uh, what kinds of stories inspire us, what things we see and, and we find us, uh, you know, visually, or we, or we read a story and want to pump our fists in the air, and, um, you know, particularly uh, those things that appeal to the, uh, you know, to the macho man in all of us. And uh, one such scene comes from the movie 300. Um, the TV version, uh, and uh, but it, it's it's this great scene, and, and Leonidas, he's the king of the Spartans, and he and he is coming up to this to this other um, uh, guy named Daxos, who's leading another army, and they want to join the Spartans, and so they're talking about being soldiers, and here here's how the scene goes: Leonidas says to Daxos, Daxos, what a pleasant surprise. And you have to picture, I mean, here's, you know, it's Gerard Butler. Um, he, like, has been in CrossFit. And, uh, and, and Daxus, uh, he's just been doing normal, like, workout stuff, high-intensity training. Um, so what, what a pleasant surprise, Daxus says. This morning's full of surprises, Leonidas. And one of the soldiers says, well, we've been tricked. The, the, only a few of them. That, that's a surprise. He's commenting on how, how few there are, these 300. Daxus says, silence. We heard Sparta was on the war path and were eager to join forces. Well, if a bit of blood you seek, you're welcome to join us. Well, but, but you only brought these handful of sur- uh, soldiers against Xerxes. I, I see I was wrong to expect Sparta, Sparta's commitment to at least match our own. He looks back at his vast army. Leonidas said, doesn't it? He points to a soldier next to Daxus. You there, what's your profession? Well, I'm a potter, sir. And you, Arcadian, what's your profession? I'm a sculptor, sir. Sculptor. And and you? A blacksmith. Turning towards the Spartans. Spartans, what's your profession? And here's the moment, you know. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. 
says, see, old friend, I brought more soldiers than you did. And then everything in you wants to go, yeah, I want to be a soldier. I want to die with the Spartans. I mean, you know, whatever it is. I mean, but you, you feel that rise up like, okay, these are the great men. These are the mighty men. These are the, these are the ones you'd want to take into battle. These are the ones you want defending your kingdom. You know, there's something you, we want to do this, you know. So everybody signed up for CrossFit and, um, and then they quit. And, but in 2 Samuel 23, the, the Bible is going to give us the list of David's mighty men. And, and oh, I think there's a movie there, absolutely, but... But the movie writers are going to have to fill in a whole bunch of details. They're going to have to use, uh, you know, Hollywood imagination uh, to, 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 to capture our attention beyond what is given to us in the pages of Scripture. So the mighty men, it fills out the conclusion of this book. Just before this, you'll have David's last words. We'll look at that in a few weeks, but... Um, this mighty man, this, there's going to be a scene that takes place in the middle of it where they, they, David says, I want to drink water from Bethlehem. The men go to Bethlehem. They fight through the Philistines. And we'll look at the story. But, but it happens either in 1 Samuel 22, 23, when David's hiding in the cave at Abulum, Adulam where he is on the run from Saul. Or it's in 2 Samuel chapter 5 uh, that we talked about a few weeks ago where he's hiding in the cave before he goes out to the Philistines. Either way, all the scholars are mixed. One place or the other, this takes place somewhere or in between. And David's on the run from Saul. He's surrounded by enemies. And these are the men. These men are named. There's going to be 37 of them in all is what verse 39 tells us. And the accounting of the list is in two sections. So five of them are given in more detail and, and then there's given the rest of them. As a note, you need to know it's a little weird and it's kind of hard to follow. Um, my guess is that if you were a native Hebrew speaker or native Hebrew reader um, in the original language, it wouldn't be that difficult. Verse 13 tells us there's three of the 30. Verse 39 tells us there's 37 in all. And depending on how you count it up, there's 33 or 37 or 38, but... We won't, we, won't, uh, we won't get into all those details this morning. We can trust the number 37, though, in verse 39. So who were these men? Let's ask that question and answer it quickly. If you were to look in 1 Samuel chapter 22, in fact, uh, Johnny Russell uh, uh, had that passage several weeks ago. And um, in the beginning of 1 Samuel 22... Uh, David uh, is on the run from Saul. He goes out. He's looking for a place to hide his parents in, in Moab, uh, where uh, his, his ancestors are from. And then it says this in verse 2, and it says, Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were about 400 men. 
So David here, he's on the run, and they hear David's out there. They, they have wind that you know, Saul has, has become a, a, a maniac, a tyrannical maniac. And so David's out there, and he's hiding in the caves. And there are these folks that begin to assemble. They begin to be drawn to the cave at Adullam where, where David is. And the writer takes a moment... Where we don't get all the details of all the story, but he wants us to know, the writer wants us to know, that these folks that came out to David and then he had command over them, they were those that were distressed, they were in debt, and they were bitter in their soul. These words in and of themselves have a freight of meaning. To be distressed is to be in in dire straits. If, if you were to follow that word throughout the Old Testament, it's used that way only a few times. It, it's introduced to us in Deuteronomy. And God is um, prophesying. He's telling the future of the Israelites during a time of disobedience and a time of rebellion against Him. And He says, listen, the, 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 the conditions are going to be so bad. The famine that you're going to experience. Because of your rebellion towards me, the famine you'll experience, the hunger you'll experience, the distress that you'll experience, it will cause you, it'll cause you to do the unthinkable. You'll be in such distress he says that you will turn and begin to eat your children. That kind of distress. In fact, it's fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 6 as the nation is, um, is at the height of its rebellion. There's nowhere to turn. You're desperate and you're fully aware of your need. That's where these people were. And Isaiah will talk about it in Isaiah 51, and it'll say, listen, there's a danger here. When you're so distressed, the danger is not seeking comfort from your Creator, Isaiah will say. Instead, that danger, the danger is that that distress will push you to despair of the fear of the enemy. It's when you have no other place to go. That's... That's the first characteristics of these people that gathered David. They were in debt, which means they had no success. The sting of past failure and circumstances overwhelmed them. And it says they were bitter in soul. The Bible uses the phrase often, the, the water of bitterness. To, to be so thirsty and only to be made worse by the bitter taste of water. I, I remember I was, when I was growing up, we lived, I lived next door to the Duggars, Alan uh, Duggar, who, um, like at 11, I think had already been to jail or something like that, you know. But he had a sister that was even worse than he was. Uh, her name was Tiffany. And I remember one day, it was this hot summer day in Abilene, Texas, and we, you know, we'd be running around playing, you know, like you do when you were a little kid, or you used to when you were a little kid before we had games. 
video games. Um, never mind. So, but we were hot and we were sweaty. We were dying for it. And so here she comes. She got this tray and she's got these little cups of water. And I mean, so we grabbed the water and drink. And it wasn't water. You know what it was? It was hot wax. Yeah, that's terrible, isn't it? I told you she's worse than he was. She just never got caught. That's like the water of bitterness right there, you know? That kind of bitter. I want you to take note here for just a second. These mighty men, these folks that are going to be named, these that are going to be recorded in the annals of the biblical history, this was their start. This is how they started. This was the story of their life. But it wasn't how it ended. There is this transforming power that happened in their life when they came and submitted themselves to the king. It's this great picture of the Christian life. I mean, listen, the Christian life, it is not the story. I mean, our stories, our backstories are not, you know, so, so we, we, you, know, so you want to sing Onward, Christian Soldier. I think it's a great song. Our backstories are not like the movie 300. I mean, we weren't trained from birth to be these, you know, Christian soldiers, these mighty men. This... Our backstories are those of people who are distressed and in debt and bitter in soul and finally come to the place of realizing there's nothing I can do in my life. I, I bring nothing and I am desperate to be transformed. And that's what happens when we come and submit our lives to the true king, Jesus. That's a, there's a different ending of, of our lives awaiting all of us. It's the story written of us in Jesus. And it absolutely transcends the, the story of our pasts whatever they may be. Well, what's the difference in their life? If you'll look with me, we're here in, in 2 Samuel 23. I'll read a few of these verses. and It says this, these are the names, uh, beginning in verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. There's Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachemonite, Techem, yeah, Techemonite. And he was the chief of the three. And he wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. That's a bad dude. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. Ahohai! Um, and he, hi didn't, that's not how you said hi in Hebrew anyway. But, so, but he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew, and he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword, 
and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. It's this interesting picture about this guy, Eleazar. He goes out. He's the only one that goes with David. He ends up fighting with David. He, he, he fights to the end of the battle to the degree that his hand is so weary from holding the sword. And then, the way the text says it is, after the battle's won, all the men came back, and they began to divide up all the spoils. No, oh, no, no, come, come on, really. Uh, it was nothing. But notice this in verse 10. It was the Lord that brought about a great victory that day. In verse 11, it says, And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Heronite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi. And there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. These men, these distressed men, these, these indebted men, the, the, these, these failures in life who come bitter in soul to David their king end up being transformed. And what's the difference? And the text is telling us the difference is the Lord brought it about. The Lord worked. The Lord comes and works in His kingdom through His people serving His king. Listen, their victories didn't happen without them. But those victories did not happen because of them. It's, it's a great reminder. I mean, to be in service to the king may be, you know, listen, as believers, it may be that we take our stand in the field of lentils all by ourselves. Maybe that we swing a sword and feels like it. Swinging the sword till your hand is absolutely weary. You look up and think, what, 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 what can I do? And my weakness and my little bit of strength, and you realize well, the, the Lord did that. Over and above what I could do swinging my own sword. The strength and the power of the Lord. The victories didn't happen without them. They didn't happen because of them. That's the way it is in our life. It's important to remember this as we get to this next section. Everything in our life, we owe to the grace and the mercy and the power of God. That's what the writer's making clear here. Let, lest we build the statues and, 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 and frame the pictures of these men as, 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 as the mighty men all on their own, it's the Lord who gets the credit here, the one who gets the praise. Now, you, you've got the three, and you have the divine enablement, and now I want you to see, here's the story. Here's the flannel graph Story, the, the one they haven't made the movie about yet, but 
Surely they could, right? I mean, they should make this movie. And it says this, And three of the thirty chief men, verse 13, went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephim. Now, Philistines, they are, uh, they're, they're, they're left coast uh, uh, in, 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 the, in the promised land. They're on the Mediterranean Sea, far on the west coast. For them to be in the valley of Rephim, for them to be this far east and to have a stronghold, to be encamped this far east would have been absolutely deflating. It, it would have been demoralizing that they'd made up such ground. In verse 14, when David was in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was at, uh, then at Bethlehem, which is David's hometown, and David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me a drink, uh, would, would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should drink this. Shall I drink the, the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. One writer said this, so there are stories in the Bible which we're almost afraid to touch for fear of spoiling them. This is one of those stories. First thing I think we need to understand is, one, how demoralizing it would have been for the Philistines to be that far east. Secondly, they have set up encampment. There's a garrison now, a military presence. They've, they've taken Bethlehem. Bethlehem's theirs now, which is David's hometown. And, and David's there, and he's in, hiding in the cave. He's hiding from Saul, the, the Philistines. So all the enemies from without, all the enemies from within. And I think you have a man who is seated here who finds himself very desperate Longing for the good old days when life was simpler, when he just, listen, he just had some sheep to take care of on the hillside in Bethlehem. And it was his brothers, his older brothers, they were the ones that went to war. I mean, he was carefree. I, I think there is a part of David that is longing for a life that was less complicated and less stressful and And so he says, if I could just have a drink of water from the well at the gate in Bethlehem. You find out in the Old Testament is referred to as, this, as the sweet water. I mean, he's, he's homesick. He's it's kind of past life sick, you know? When you look back and you're like, man, I wish, wish it wasn't so complicated. I just, I just long for those 
days back then. So here's the thing we need to know. David, David wasn't thirsty. I mean, he's in the cave at Adullam. There are springs around there. There was water to drink. David was longing for something more than water. He was longing for God. He was longing for His presence. He was longing for God's security. I mean, there's no place like home. And, and David's home was in God. I mean, maybe it's David longing for his childhood. Maybe David longing for when there weren't any burdens and, and, and there wasn't chaos and everything seemed clear and the future was bright. You can go and read this afternoon, if you want, it's a great psalm. Psalm 57, David writes from this cave. And you find in the psalm, satisfaction can't be brought by water to the lips. Satisfaction comes from the protection of God. And in this case, God's going to use these men that he raises up to protect David and, and, to, and to display this devotion and this, and this loyalty that God granted this grace to him through these men. You know, verse 16, we, we, we long for more detail here, don't we? I mean, it's just one verse is the total sum of the record of what must have been one of the most heroic, brave, loyal, loving acts in all of the Old Testament. I mean, here's these three men. They don't stop and make a plan. D David isn't even really giving them a command. He's just, just kind of saying the word. Maybe he's just saying it under his breath, just kind of sighing. Man, wouldn't it be, if I could ever just have that water again. You know, it's kind of like the water, the, maybe the place you grew up, you know? It's like nothing tastes as good as that water right out of the fountain. You didn't grow up in Abilene, Texas, but you... But if you grew up someplace else, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just water out of the... It's cool tap water. That's the water in the spring. And so these three men, they hear that, and they're like, let's go, let's get David this water. And so they go, and they, and they, they go, and they fight through... I mean, just think about this. Here's they have they they have this garrison. They they they've got this military presence, and they fight through the Philistines. They fight through the Philistines. I mean, with sword, they're slaying Philistines. They're, they're dropping everywhere. They're they fighting Philistines so that they can get to this well and draw a drink of water. So there's one guy's probably you know he he's probably drawing it, and the other two are standing there, and they're, you know they're cutting Philistines in half and. This is a great movie, right? And then they leave, and they, the Philistines are probably assessing, you know, what, what exactly just happened? What did they come? Did, did they come steal the secret plans of our garrison? Did they, did they come steal our military plans? Did they take somebody hostage? Did they? One guy said, uh, no. Uh, it was just a, it was a, it was a cup of water. Is what they got. Amazing story of storyline of a great movie. You know, John Williams' music playing in the background. 
Well, let me say this. You know what the Bible's very consistent about? The Bible is very consistent about what it highlights. I think we should be inspired by these three men and their loyalty. If ever we have a chance at a, at a heroic or a brave or courageous act, it, it, yes, we, we should do those things. But to be clear, the Bible is consistent at this one theme from the beginning to the end. We are not the heroes of the story. Even at our best, even at our most heroic, we're not the heroes. God's the hero. One writer said it this way, the Bible knows all human heroes point to the real hero, so it doesn't romanticize. The Bible never romanticizes military actions. It never romanticizes blood and guts. You never see it. Not, not at all like the Greek myths. Not at all like other ancient myths. It's revelation. This is not the aspiration of the human heart. This isn't just human Poetry, this isn't just human art. This is revelation from God. Notice that David, when he gets the water, he doesn't simply pour it out. But the text says he pours it out to the Lord. I always, as I was growing up, imagined this scene where David is parched, you know, his lips are cracked and dry and just needs water and, and these guys bring him water and he pours it out and then these guys are are ticked off. <laughs> Wait a minute. We, we just we, we just and you just you made a mud puddle. Here's what we need to see in the text. It is not an act of waste. It's an act of worship. And these men, I think, would have absolutely understood what David was doing. They would have absolutely understood this was a holy moment. This was holy ground. It was a moment to worship. David saying that you know, only the Lord's worthy of such a sacrifice. I'm not worthy of this. Only God is worthy of this. It is this gift that David gives back to the Lord. More than providing a drink of water, what they've granted David is a means of worship, a means of worship in the midst of his, of his thirst and of his, of his longing, of his desperation for God. See, what he does is he turns that into a drink of Offering And a drink offering was this activity, this sabbatical activity, this Sabbath activity. It's a, it's a sign and a, and a means of, of resting and celebrating in the presence of God. 
In some ways, yes, the cup of water does fulfill the longing, and it fulfills the longing. David pours it out in active worship, and David will find himself at rest in the Lord. Not because his, his thirst was slaked, but his, but his soul was revived. See, the men that served David were, were, were used by God to bring this great assurance to him. And David would not ruin the moment by using these men and their sacrifice for his own personal gain. See, these, this devotion to David, his, his sigh, his his maybe under-the-breath remark became their command. I mean, it's this great picture of our devotion to the greater David, to, to Jesus. What does God require of me? Maybe you'd ask that. One writer says, the goal of the religious person is to do what God wants in order to get some kind of reward. But for a Christian, the reward is... It's the joy and the pleasure of God. His delight is your reward. It's not a means to an end. It is the end. Religious people use God to get something. Christians know that the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction is the joy of God Himself. That's why Paul will write in Romans chapter 12, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Not for what you will get in return, but for the joy that you will receive. I think this was a great assurance to David. And notice that the assurance came when he was in a cave hiding. The need for assurance often comes in the midst of when things seem the most unsure. That's why you have a need for assurance. I mean, when life's closing in and when circumstances of life aren't what we planned for, but maybe not even what we've worked so hard to avoid, that thing has come. That's so often when we need assurance, when we need a word, when we when we're in a place that we need to be reminded, we're, we're longing to remember, we're, we're longing for, for home. And notice that assurance, it doesn't come on the throne. It comes in the cave for David. There's this great parallel to this scene, and you can find it in, in Mark chapter 14, and it's just before Jesus will have the last supper with his disciples. And he goes to a house of a guy named Simon the leper. And uh, uh, it's one of the last meals he'll eat with anybody else besides the disciples. And he um, goes to the house, and then there's this woman we know as Mary of Bethany. And she comes in with this lavishly expensive jar of, of perfume or, or incense that would have 
likely been worth a year's wage, and, and you discover about this woman, she has nothing else. This is probably an heirloom. This is probably something passed down. Maybe her inheritance. Maybe this is what she had to live on. And Jesus is seated there, and she comes in, and she takes the oil and breaks the jar and anoints Jesus. It is this beautiful and breathtaking scene. Spoiled only by the people watching, saying, What a waste that was. And Jesus says, No, it wasn't a waste. It's beautiful. In fact, everywhere the gospels proclaimed, She's going to be remembered. There's no sacrifice so great that it doesn't come with the, with the joy of the Lord. Well, in verse 18, let, let me just say this. I'm not going to read the rest of it. Then, um, you, I think you should read it to your children tonight. And every one of the names. You have Abishai. You have uh, Benaiah. Um, um, Asashel. Uh, and it goes on and on. And all the names begin to be listed. Let me tell you a couple of things about these. Um, there's a dispersion of hometowns. Some of them are from the hill country of Judah, which is right around where David grew up. Some of them are from surrounding areas, the, the desert or, or the, the mountains. In the list are even people that were enemies and foreigners. And I want you to notice the very last one. I will read verse 39. Look at what it says. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. You know, all that is said in a name, right? I mean, of all the things that could be written in this, that may be the verse that speaks the loudest in this record. I mean, the memories that it evokes, the, it's like a whole chapter of narrative and wisdom literature and prophecy all rolled up in a name. And don't forget that Uriah the Hittite, he was one of the mighty men. It's the last entry. And it, it, like, it, it, it like drops the list like this thud right in front of you so that nobody can forget. One commentator said, the name Uriah at the end of the list leads us to recall what's associated with his name. The list of the men who were David's bodyguards ends with the name of one who did not betray the king but was betrayed by him. 
The end of the list is meant to tell us, don't forget the name of the last of David's mighty men. We are thus prohibited from making heroes of David or his men. Even here, history was not made by men, but by the grace of God whose help and forgiveness were needed even by David in his time. You know, the truth is, if we're honest this morning, memories can haunt us, can't they? I think what this tells us, the writer of Samuel, remember, he's not just giving us history, he's giving us theology, is that they don't need to haunt us, but yet there is an appropriate um, humbling that comes with memories. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace I am what I am. As loud and ominous as Uriah the Hittite, you hear, because I persecuted the church of God. A memory that Paul still can't get out of his mind. But it doesn't, it's not a memory that haunts him, but it humbles him. The least of the apostles and unworthy to be called such. But it doesn't bring him to despair. You know what it does? It brings him to grace. That kind of grace isn't just for kings and apostles. Our, our lives are immersed in a divine grace. Maybe there's sadness, but because of God's grace, it's a holy sadness or a godly grief. But we need, need no longer be haunted, yet humbled by God's grace. See, David was both a man after God's own heart, and, as we looked last week, a murdering adulterer. The message that the real hero of the Bible isn't David, it is, it is not Moses, it's, it's not one of these mighty men who, who was the lion killer. It, it's, it's God. He's the only one that doesn't fail. He doesn't fall. He has no feats of clay. We think back to Jesus and His temptation in the wilderness. He's tempted by infinite power and infinite resources and the offer of an easy life. Yet he resists the temptation, walks out of the desert towards an agonizing path to the cross. The hero's journey. And he did that for you and for me. He's the one who rides to the rescue. He's the one who sacrifices himself. He is the mighty man. He is the hero. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we...
come to you this morning and I